This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Savor, a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about chocolate chip cookies. And everyone is excited about it. Yes, very excited kind of hungry. This is a craving-y episode for sure. It's always, I, I feel like when you have a craving for a cookie, it's not the kind of craving I want because then <laughs> you eat inevitably too many cookies. Yeah. And then you're angry with cookies for a while. Yeah. Until, and nobody wants to be angry with a cookie. No, They're such they, nice things. Exactly. It's like being angry with a puppy. You're like, oh, <laughs> so yes. fluffy though. <laughs> yes. Just like a good Just chocolate chip exactly. cookie. Um, <laughs> I have a reputation around these parts for making a very specific type of chocolate cookie on request, um, usually for people's birthdays. It's supposed to be the, quote, best chocolate chip cookie recipe from Jacques Torres. Oh, decided, that one. Yes. Okay. Yes. As decided by a survey of bakers and your average consumer, it requires a chilling time of 24 hours and up to 72 hours. And another thing that makes them distinct is the use of two different types of flour. Yeah, bread flour and cake flour, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Large size, which allows for three different distinct textures, crispy, soft center, and then the sort of mix in between the two. Many a drunken night, I have somehow avoided ruining these cookies. <laughs> it always happens that, like, the night I have to bake them, I, like, go out and stay out too late. Uh-huh. So far, disaster's been avoided. I think that really once, once you... Is this after you've already 
chilled the dough? Yes. Okay, well, see, the baking part is easy, I think. Well, it, it would be if you had an oven that oh. behaved like a regular oven. But I have some kind of machine of space and time that does not function like you think it will. And you need to be very vigilant. I see. Yes. Okay. Otherwise, I agree. Just set the timer and put the cookies in. No, no. No. Especially the longer you go, like the third batch is in way more danger than the first batch is. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I see. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm, thank you for undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Your birthday is approaching. It is, as it we is. record this extremely quickly. Extremely. By the time you hear this, it's already over. I mean, it's so strange. <laughs> Time, why are you so weird? (laughs) Um, Speaking of New York, I have a cookie tour that I do in that city. It takes stamina, but it is worth it. Were we speaking of New York? We were. Jacques Torres is New York. Oh, okay. All right. New York Times. There we go. Recipe. I see. I probably didn't say anything, but that's just knowledge in the back of my head. (laughs) And I, to this day, tell that Nestle Toll House joke from friends. I've told it on this very show. Nestle Toll House. Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nestle Dollhouse. Um, for those who don't know, that is a project. You can go look it up should you want to. I'm not should. telling you what to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. We cannot tell you what to do. Nose. Uh, Nose is not a word. <laughs> but it's, it's what I said. Sure. We'll roll with it. Mm-hmm. We are the music makers and we are the dreamers of the dreams. We are. Um, I'm also notorious for ordering cookies from Tiff Streets at 3 a.m. This is not a sponsored episode. I do it all the time. <laughs> um, I've somehow avoided doing that. Ever. I'm really proud of myself. You should be. (laughs) You should be. (laughs) Uh, National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day is May 15th. Oh, so we just missed it. Uh Uh-huh, in classic saver style. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, can I... I'm not sure whether to do this now or to do it in a minute. Do do you have have a preferred style of chocolate chip cookie? Oh, a very personal question. It is. I mean, you know, is, is, is it soft or crispy or chewy? How much chocolate? How much sweetness? Do other things go into cho- chocolate chip cookies like nuts, raisins, sprinkles? I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> no, I've given this a lot of thought. <laughs> of course I have. I like, I like a cookie that is crisp might be too strong a word, uh-huh. but like a little crisp on the outside and then, like, gooey on the inside. I have okay. a lot of friends that think that's uh-huh. gross. But I Oh, love... no, I like it. I yes. like it. Uh-huh. I think it's cool. And I like um, the big chunks of chocolate, but not too many. And then maybe a little <laughs> bit of salt on top. Oh, yeah. Just some kind of, like, contrast. Yeah. I do occasionally like a good pecan in there as well. And I know that some people <laughs> really take offense <laughs> at that. If I, But if I'm in the mood for some, some texture. Sure. Pecan. I... I agree. I my my personal favorite is a browned butter Ooh. chocolate chip cookie. I agree that chunks are superior to chips, mm-hmm. and uh, in, in your chocolate format. And then um, <laughs> and then I do I do like some toasted pecans in there, but oh, similar I, cookie preferences. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's because it's clearly the best. <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Clearly, all the emails are just coming in. I can sense a disturbance in the cookie force. I have to try this brown butter thing. I've never done that. Oh, my goodness. I've got tips on it at the end. Perfect. Okay. But before yeah, yes. we get to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are getting way ahead of ourselves. We are. We need to get to our question. Mm-hmm. Chocolate chip cookie. 
What is it? Well, a chocolate chip cookie is a type of baked good that consists of a, of a sweet, buttery, vanilla-laced dough traditionally made with wheat flour uh, mixed with morsels of chocolate, traditionally semi-sweet chocolate, which is a type of dark chocolate, and baked into sort of palm-sized, mostly flat disks. The dough can be made in a number of ways to yield different textures, though the classic is uh, soft, chewy in the center, and yes, just crisp on the rim. Mm. The result is rich and sweet with lots of like toasty, buttery, caramely flavors and uh, spikes of mild bitterness from the little bits of chocolate. Um, You can serve them warm or room temperature, but when they're warmed up, the chocolate gets like all gooey and melty, and those aromas really ramp, which is nice. Um, And yes, you can hypothetically, Mm -hmm. add other stuff like chopped nuts. The original recipe does call for chopped nuts. See? Uh Uh-huh. But in some circles, yes, this is contentious. Very. Um, Very. (laughs) Variations abound. Uh, You can add cocoa to the dough for double chocolate chip cookies. You can spread the dough evenly out in a pan for a sheet of cookie, sometimes called like a cookie cake, Mm -hmm. uh, which can be then cut into bars if you so choose. At a certain point, though, I would argue that the point of a chocolate chip cookie is its simplicity, that the the contrast of crisp and soft, of sweet and bitter. If you do stuff to, to ramp up those contrasts, I'm chill with it. But I'd say that changes that take it in a different direction make it a different cookie. Yeah. I think there's an essence of chocolate chip cookie. I do, too. It's really simple. Yeah. If there's too much going on, that's a different cookie. It's a different cookie. And that's okay. Yeah. I like different cookies. I love different cookies. <laughs> We all like cookies around here. <laughs> um, but what about biscuits? But what about exactly? Because there is some name confusion. The British and Australians would call these biscuits, I guess. Um, more on that and why the difference in our biscuit episode. Basically spite. <laughs> Basically spite. But cookie comes from the Dutch word for small or little cake. Um, and what's commonly spelled C-O-O-K-Y through the 1960s uh, for the singular cookie, um, with the plural then being C-O-O-K-I-E-S. And I'm not sure exactly how the changeover for the singular happened, but I like it. Yeah. It kind of looks like cookie meets cocky. Yeah. That way. Cookie. Um. Cookie crisp. Oh, no. (laughs) I do own that board game. (laughs) There's a board game and you have to steal the cookies. For cookie crisp? There's a cookie crisp? Goodness gracious. Absolutely there is. And it's like a spinning thing and you have to reach in and grab the cookies and not get the spinning thing. Wow. It's his arm. Bring it. Oh, my goodness. That's creepy. I love it. Yes. Uh, Bring it to the next game night. (laughs) (laughs) Done. (laughs) We have have an office game night, guys. We do. Um, The British articles that I read about this object, which is the subject of our episode, mm-hmm. did call them chocolate chip cookies, not chocolate chip biscuits. Yeah. Um, and one Felicity Cloak writing for The Guardian further distingu- distinguished uh, British biscuits from American cookies, saying that cookies tend to be softer and richer than biscuits, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah, that's why I'm not sure. I know in general the biscuit yeah. cookie thing, but chocolate chip cookies might specifically be, be like the own. American Yes, cookie. this thing. Yeah. Yeah. British listeners, write in, let us know. Absolutely. But now we must talk about nutrition. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a it's a cookie, y'all. There's a lot of butter in there. Um, like, generally, you're talking about a lot of uh, fat and sugar with relatively small amounts of protein and fiber, perhaps up to, I think, like, like 10 or 11% of your daily allotment of saturated fats in a single cookie. Um, 
and portion portion control is 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 nice. Um, yeah. Adding things like oatmeal or nuts does make it a little bit better. Um, watch out for soft baked style cookies, like shelf stable soft baked cookies. They're uh, likely extra fatty and thus extra caloric, which of course is fine in moderation. Again, you know. Yes. Read your labels. Think about your choices. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of recipes on the internet can help you craft higher protein cookies uh, with maybe a little bit more fiber that still have at least a couple of the textures that you crave. Um, uh, supplements or substitutions like applesauce and almond flour are pretty great. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cookie numbers. Yes. We have some cookie numbers for you. The chocolate chip cookie is America's favorite cookie. Oh, yeah. Over half the cookies baked at homes in this country are some variety of chocolate chip. And we eat an annual 7 billion of these suckers worldwide each year. Oof. Mm-hmm. A 2002 study found that the chocolate chip cookie ranked as one of the four most acceptable foods for picky eaters, along with Kraft mac and cheese, fried chicken, and french fries. That's oh. America for you. <laughs> Also, that sounds pretty good. That that does. I mean, all of those are things that I enjoy. <laughs> I do, too. And I think I've enjoyed them in a single meal before. <laughs> <laughs> Nestle sells about 90 billion chocolate morsels a year. As of 1997, chocolate chip cookies are the state cookie of Massachusetts. This is the result of a proposal of a class of third graders. Pennsylvania, meanwhile, has a debate over two competing proposals for a state cookie. One, the chocolate chip, and two, the Nazareth sugar cookie. Unresolved. Oh, wow. Sometimes that's how the cookie crumbles. On order sound effect. <laughs> or I think it might be more CSI, because that, from what I understand, that's where a lot of those, like, sunglasses is getting pulled off, even oh, though it's in the night, and then right. some kind of bad jackpot. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody write in and let me know what the proper (laughs) sound effect should have been. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Uh, Important questions. Very. Important homework that we give you. Um, uh, We've alluded to some of the history of this particular cookie, but, uh, but we've got a lot more history for you. But first, we've got a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
all these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Cookie history, which now that I think about it, is like an internet pun. <laughs> Cookies. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Is, uh, is, I don't even mean to do it sometimes. <laughs> <sighs> you just can't help yourself. Yeah, I can't. I mm-hmm. can't. <laughs> Cookies themselves are pretty old. The first instance of a cookie-style cake is thought to date back to modern-day Iran in the 7th century CE, one of the first places where they figured out sugar. Records show cookies were a thing in Europe by the 14th century. Since they were a convenient handheld item, they spread along trade routes fairly quickly, although more likely in the form of hardtack or biscuits. Sure. The sweeter variety was something that bakers went through years of training to learn how to make, in Europe at least. That is, until industrialization allowed them to commercialize. Industrialization also brought leavening agents like baking powder and baking soda, which are commonly used in uh, cookies to provide a little bit lift and a slight cakiness today. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. When cookies made it over to the Americas with colonists, they were often at first called jumbles, Mm -hmm. crybabies, or plunkets. 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 I've heard of jumbles, but plunkets is great. It is, right? And I was reading the history of the cookie and now very much want to do an animal cracker episode. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Fortune cookie episode. Oh, yeah. But not now. Not today. We must <laughs> continue ahead. <laughs> One cookie at a time. <laughs> yes. Fortune cookies <laughs> like death, not today. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. The story of the chocolate chip cookie is a lot more clear cut. Ish. Ish. Well, then we're used to anyway. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Which there are still a few stories, but I mean, right. We've got the basics. We gotta take it 
We'll take what we can get when it comes to simplicity. Uh-huh. Uh, traces back to one Ruth Wakefield, who was in charge of a restaurant in Whitman, Massachusetts, called Toll House from 1930 to 1967. Yes, that Toll House. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Sometime in the 1930s, Towards the end, they debuted the Toll House Chocolate Crunch Cookie. The recipe for it was first printed in 1938 in Wakefield's Tried and True Cookbook. Originally, this cookie was meant primarily to go with ice cream. And as for that impetus behind the cookie, this is where we get a couple of different versions Mm -hmm. of that story. A popular one goes that Wakefield ran out of nuts for the cookie that usually went with the ice cream, the Butter Drop Dew, so she chopped some chocolate off a Nestle Bittersweet or Semi-Sweet, depending on your source, chocolate bar. Very brief bittersweet versus semi-sweet aside. Ooh. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that these terms are not regulated in the United States. In Europe, semi-sweet chocolate has more sugar, whereas bittersweet chocolate has more cacao. Um, but the two chocolates are used pretty interchangeably in casual baking. Um Uh, Both contain at least 35% cacao, generally more like 50%. And traditionally, they do not contain milk and rather rely on cocoa butter for their meltiness. Though these days, brands like Nestle's Toll House do contain some uh, milk fat, I suspect, because it's cheaper than cacao. uh, Yeah. Cocoa butter. Right. I feel like we talked about this. You know, all of our past episodes blend together. They do. I feel like we touched on this in one of them. Seems likely. It does seem very likely. It seems possible. Because I remember feeling like confusion around the term semi-sweet. And anyway, anyway, I'm sure someone remembers and can (laughs) remind us. We could just search our Google Drive. That's, I mean, also true. (laughs) Also true. (laughs) Another version of this whole story is the same, Mm -hmm. but replace the absent nuts with Baker's chocolate and in some versions, the chocolate was given to Ruth Wakefield by Andrew Nestle himself. Um, yet another, even more or less likely version is that an industrial mixer in Toll House's kitchen knocked over some chocolate from a shelf above it, sending it tumbling into the cookie dough it was mixing. The name Chocolate Crunch Cookie was because the chocolate didn't entirely melt when they made the cookies. Ah. However... Carolyn Wyman, author of The Great American Chocolate Chip Cookie Book, says all of these stories are unlikely. (laughs) In her mind, she doubts Wakefield, who is known for her perfectionism and her desserts, would have run out of key ingredients like Baker's chocolate or nuts. That just wouldn't have happened. Um, Born Ruth Graves in 1924, she graduated from Framingham State Normal School Department of Household Arts and went around speaking about food and worked as a dietitian. She purchased a Cape Cod-style inn with her husband in 1930. It had been around for centuries, originally a place for people on horse or in horse-drawn carriages to stop, pay their toll, have a meal, stay the night. Okay. Wyman thinks instead that, shocker, Wakefield developed the chocolate chip cookie on purpose. On purpose? <gasps> Why would anyone ever do such a thing? Dun, dun, dun. She probably didn't know it was going to be the cookie. <laughs> um, in fact, some some records suggest that she didn't really want to be known specifically for it at all because she had other desserts that she was proud of, like the Boston cream pie, pecan logs, Indian pudding. She was also well known for her $2 lobster dinners. Ooh. She didn't want to be typecast. Sure. Essentially. I mean, if I if I had basically invented both the chocolate chip cookie and the Boston cream pie, I would be I I would be like, don't pigeonhole me. <laughs> How dare you? Look at this pie. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> 
But nonetheless, very quickly, the cookie gained popularity, even going on to be featured on the radio program Famous Foods from Famous Eating Places, hosted by Marjorie Husted, better known as Betty Crocker. Or one of them, anyway. Aren't there several? There are several. Dun, dun, dun. Again, <laughs> two dun-dun-duns in one episode. <laughs> that is a future future topic. Oh, for sure. Um, this popularity was in part thanks to timing. The U.S. was coming out of the Great Depression, and here was this convenient, sweet something people had largely been doing without. For example of how quickly this recipe skyrocketed to fame, a year later in 1939, Wakefield gave Nestle the rights to both the cookie recipe and to the Toll House name. And how much did she get? One dollar. One dollar. One dollar. And according to her, she never even got that. No. <laughs> she did, however, get free chocolate for life, mostly a supply for anything that she baked. And the company paid her for some consulting work that she did. This, of course, became known as the Nestle Toll House recipe, which, again, depending on what you read, may or not be the same recipe that she actually used. Wakefield sold the restaurant in 1967 and died in 1977. The restaurant burned down on New Year's Eve in 1984, and for the last thing I read said there's a Wendy's there now, but it has a small museum dedicated to Toll House on part of its property. Or maybe it's condos. No. I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Yes. One thing I read said that when Wakefield sold it in 1967, the new owners tried to flip it into a nightclub. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. But it was sold again in 1970. These owners converted it back. Interesting. Nestle wanted to make it easy for people at home to use their chocolate to make Wakefield's recipe, which they printed on the back of their chocolate bars. At first, these bars were scored and even came with a chopper, but this wasn't ideal. So Nestle got the idea for the morsels or chips, as we in the general population more often call them, that we know today in 1939. 160 morsels per bar, to be exact. Wow. Mm-hmm. Huh. Brief chip aside. Okay. And not of the French fry or potato other potato oh, no. variety. No, not at all. <laughs> oh, so much confusion. <laughs> Nestle always uses the morsels on their packaging, but we call them chocolate chip cookies. The word chip first popped up in reference to the shape of an 18th century tea biscuit, so not the same. Uh-huh. Then in 1892, we have the first records of chip referring to candy, but still not the same. In an 1897 court case involving Trowbridge chocolate chips, and their trademark came with this description of chips, thin oblong pieces of molasses candy coated with chocolate. That was still the case when Wakefield came up with the chocolate crunch cookie. Toll House referred to them as Toll House cookies. It wasn't until the 1940s, up to the invention of the chocolate morsel, that newspaper articles started calling these cookies chocolate chip. By 1941, it was accepted as the proper name for this type of cookie. Other brands outside of Nestle call morsels chips. Yeah. Never really noticed that, but... Yep, I guess that is true. I was always charmed by, yeah, just, just morsels. I'm like, sure, chocolate morsels. <laughs> but wait... There's more, maybe. An 1887 <laughs> article from Chicago's Inter-Ocean read, Chocolate chips are always popular among the habitués of eastern watering places, and for economy and deliciousness, there is nothing in the saccharine trade to compare with them. Hmm. hmm. A patent for the mass production of chocolate chips, among other things, was filed in Massachusetts by Walter S. Walker. These seem to have been pretty close to what we have today, and Americans were putting them in cookies called jumbles, pre-mass production in the 1870s. 
These recipes typically called for grated chocolate, but with grating being time-consuming and all, historians speculate a lot of folks probably just chopped up some chocolate. Yeah. By the 1920s, Americans could purchase chocolate chip cookies. That is to say, people were probably making a thing similar to the Wakefield Dollhouse cookie prior to the invention, mm-hmm. as per usual. Yeah. But yeah. anyway. But <laughs> origin stories are great. They are. We love them. We do. And when people get famous, we like to hear about it. Yes. We want to know why. Mm-hmm. We want to know why. People often sent these cookies and care packages to soldiers overseas, too. And this helped elevate the chocolate chip cookies profile even more. While chocolate was being rationed during the war, one Nestle ad encouraged women to use their small supply for, quote, the soldier boy of yours. And there's a picture of an American soldier captioned with, his one weakness, Toll House cookies from home. Alone, the Toll House gift shop sent thousands of cookies abroad. Along comes further industrialization. By the 1950s, American consumers could find frozen chocolate chip cookie dough from both Nestle and Pillsbury in their grocery stores. In 1963, Nabisco's prepackaged chocolate chip cookies, Chips Ahoy, debuted. As the baby boomers aged, they craved the cookies of their past. And in the 70s, cookie purveyors Mrs. Fields, Famous Amos, and David's Cookies all got their start. Each of these enjoyed successes in the following decade and inspired even more cookie places to open. By 1985, American America had 1,200 cookie stands. We can assume most of those cookie stands offered a chocolate chip cookie. I would say so. I would, yes. This brought back memories for me. When I was a kid, I used to slice off a hefty piece, (laughs) hefty, of those Pillsbury chocolate chip cookie logs every night. Oh. Every night. Oh, wow. Yeah. So unhealthy. (laughs) So delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's something about just raw chocolate chip cookie dough. Yeah. And, and you know, you hear about the salmonella and all that stuff. Even when I was a kid, I was like. Whatever. The deliciousness outweighs potential threat. The, the, the risk of actually getting salmonella is very, very, very small. Unless you are immunocompromised, I would hazard to say that you're going to be okay. Right. We um, also talked about that in a past episode. I we have. Recall. We definitely have. Um, uh, also, these days, yeah, they, they make them without they, – they pasteurize the eggs before they put them in because they know that people are just going to take a spoon to that tube yes. and just eat it. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. In 1969, Jim Henson debuted a blue monster on Sesame Street who was a voracious eater. By the second season, um, which I think began airing in 71, 72, something like that, um, the monster had a name, Cookie Monster, and a favorite food, chocolate chip cookies. Although for, uh, for puppet purposes, they do not use real chocolate chip cookies. When they're, when they're feeding him, they, uh, they, they, use, <laughs> they use rice cracker cookies that are, that are made to look like chocolate chip cookies because all the grease and oil in, oh. uh, in regular cookies would, would uh, hurt the puppet. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I believe Frank Oz was the original performer on there. And uh, according to the Smithsonian Institute, which has the first Cookie Monster puppet, not always on display, but they've just, you know, got it in a back room somewhere at the mm-hmm. very least. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, you, you can feed Cookie Monster because his mouth has this tube that goes down the actor's oh. arm, uh, like like attached mm-hmm. to the sleeve. So, yeah. That's how it works. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's like, do you remember those Cabbage Patch dolls that had to be recalled because oh. they were like eating your hair at night? Yeah. I had one of those. Oh. <laughs> did it eat your hair at yes, night? Yes, it did. <laughs> it hurt. <laughs> it was kind of scary. You wake up and you hear this like, <laughs> and this doll is getting closer and closer to your face. <laughs> 
Cookie Monster's a little less frightening. Yeah, Cookie Monster is relatively friendly. Yeah. I uh, pardon me. I, I like backed away from the <laughs> mic during that telling of that story, um, and then remembered that I'm on air, so I should probably <laughs> approach the microphone. Uh, yeah, that's creepy as heck. Uh, let's talk about Famous Amos. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's do the. <laughs> The guy behind this, Wally Amos, was a talent agent, and after one of his biggest clients ditched him um, and another of his clients broke his leg right before filming was about to start, Amos decided, you know what? It's time for a cookie stand. There's always money in the cookie stand. That's what they say. And in 1975, he set one up on Sunset Boulevard, in part funded by Marvin Gaye, among others. All right. Among others. Someone who worked with Amos, unable to find the story behind the chocolate chip cookie, made one up. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Quote, in a tiny farmhouse kitchen in Lowell, Massachusetts, on what became known as Brown Tuesday. That's when the (laughs) (laughs) chocolate chip cookie was invented. (laughs) And that was printed on the store's bag. Okay. Amos began saying, have a very brown day. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And also he had a go-to look, which was a Panama hat and an embroidered shirt. And I say this because I am very tickled by it, but also, and I didn't delve into this, but I read potentially kooky comes from famous Amos. Oh. Because he was a kooky cookie guy. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He made it to the cover of Time magazine, even though ownership shuffled of the company four times between 1985 and 1989. And he grew so upset with the quality of the cookies, reminded me very much of Colonel Sanders and KFC. Like like later after the uh, right. industrialization of the famous Amos cookie, sure. Exactly. Uh-huh. He moved on to muffins. Oh. But eventually he was on an episode of Shark Tank where he pitched a company he dubbed the Cookie Kahuna. Did not work out. Oh, no. But it's, to me that demonstrates he never completely let go of his love of cookies. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. That's good. Don't let the bastards grind you down, man. All relate yeah. to the love of cookies. <laughs> in August 1983, Nestle lost the exclusive trademark of Toll House, meaning it can legally be used as a descriptor for a cookie. Ah. Yeah. And this is when we start seeing all kinds of chocolate chip cookie riffs. The Chipwitch, the Pookie. Pookie? <laughs> yes. Just a pie encased in chocolate chip cookie dough. I didn't know that's what it was oh. called. I thought like a Pazookie. Which is the cookie that's you make in a skillet, a cast iron skillet. Oh, like I didn't a know there was a different differentiation, differentiation between a pookie and a pazuki. Silly well, me. I, <laughs> <laughs> or even thinking. Jeez, Reese, get your brain in it. I don't know what I'm doing on this podcast. I clearly am not qualified. <laughs> um, the cookie dough bite, which I believe is uh, Super Producer Dylan's favorite. Candy. We discussed in-depth theater candy once. Oh, right. I think that's what he said. Yeah, I, I believe I believe you're correct. And then Ben and Jerry's came out with the chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream in 1984. This was a big deal. Oh, yes. Apparently, a consumer wrote this idea and put it anonymously in the suggestion jar. Genius, whoever you are. Yeah. Um, it was huge, uh, enough so that in order to meet demand, the company spent the next 
five years finding ways to mechanize what at first was a very handmade process of mixing in the frozen cookie dough with the ice cream. It was their best-selling product by 1991, dethroning Heath Bar Crunch, which is my mom's favorite. Hmm. Hmm. And it's still one of their most popular products. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I... I would hazard to guess that that kicked off the uh, the the cookie dough craze. Yeah, oh yeah, which right, we didn't even talk about. The, yeah, all the places now where you can buy cookie, cookie dough. dough. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's one. There's one downstairs there in this is. very uh, very poncy building that we work in. Yes, uh-huh. yes. I once made the mistake of. Um, <laughs> There was this really popular restaurant in New York, and I'm sure people in New York are groaning because they already know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and I don't remember what it was called, but I like heard about it. And mm-hmm. this was kind of early in the, you know, you can go buy chocolate chip like you would ice cream, a chocolate chip cookie dough um, phase, phase, trend. It was very early. It was like one of the uh-huh. first. And um, I was like, oh, I got to go check it out. And I very, you know, burp, 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 walk up to the door and somebody was like, <clears throat> and just pointed at the and li- the line oh. went around block, block, block. <laughs> and I was like, nope. All right. <laughs> I gave it a, the old college try. And uh not it didn't work out. Didn't no, work that's out. that's okay. That's okay. You have mm-hmm. to you have to choose how to use your time. Yeah. If mm-hmm. I had you gotta plan your weights. You gotta plan your weights. You do, mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. And I have I have a I have a chocolate chip cookie legal battle for you. You know I love a legal battle. Aha. Uh-huh. So in the late 1980s, Duncan Hines sued Keebler, Frito-Lay, and Nabisco for patent infringement on their chocolate chip cookie process. Oh. They, uh, Duncan Hines had patented the idea of achieving this cookie that's crisp on the outside and chewy on the inside by actually using two different doughs. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh, the outer dough uh, uses complex sugars that are happy to crystallize and therefore help it crisp up. And the inner dough uses simple sugars. They're uh, crystallization resistant that help it stay moist and chewy in there. Um, And in 1989, they won. To the tune of a $125 million settlement, which at the time was the largest settlement ever for a patent lawsuit. Don't mess around with cookies. Don't mess around with cookies. Mm -mm. They are very serious. They are a serious business. On New Year's Eve 2013, the town of Whitman dropped a giant Dolal's cookie. Like, <laughs> instead of the ball in Times uh-huh. Square, the peach we have here, uh, like a giant fake cookie. Oh, that's good. Well, that's good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would have enjoyed having a piece of a giant cookie. But... Oh, sure. It seems structurally unsound. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Speaking of structure. Ooh. <laughs> we do have some science for you. It's we true. We do. But first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. 
What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Cookie Science. Some of my very favorite science. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, as uh, as Annie said that she does with her recipe from Jack Torres at the top, um, one of the very best things that you can do for the flavor and texture of your chocolate chip cookies is to let the dough rest at least overnight. And ideally, for 24 to 36 hours. Yes, I've never heard of that 72 thing. That's that's a lot. Yeah, you can't just low-key, oh, I want to make these cookies. You've got a plan. Yes, you have, to, you, have, you have to do this with purpose. And don't just let it rest on the countertop, you monsters, you cookie monsters. You put, put, the, put the dough in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and the result will be a, a cookie with a richer, more caramely kind of flavor and a, a firmer and or less crumbly texture. Um, you can also freeze cookie dough, by the way, for like a month or two, and then just 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 chunk out portions when you want to have a fresh cookie. When the craving hits. Oh, whenever. Not wherever. You basically have to be at home for that to work. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, what's going on here science-wise is that when you let the dough rest, you're, you're letting the, um, the flour completely moisturize, which will let it form a little bit extra gluten. That's, that's the firmer... Uh, slightly chewier texture, but it won't get too chewy because 
The other thing that's going on is that the contact with moisture is going to let some of the proteins and the starches in the flour break down a little bit into simpler chains. Um, so, so A, it won't like gum up too much, and B, uh, it'll it'll provide uh, more different molecules to uh, either go through the uh, Maillard reaction or to caramelize in the oven when it all heats up. Mm. Delightful. Mm-hmm. Also, for very best results. Use a recipe that calls for ingredients by weight and weigh your ingredients. Oh. Oh, do it. Just do it. Just get a kitchen scale and do it. Oh, baking is science (laughs) for hungry people. (laughs) Yeah, maybe if I get like a beaker and the the (laughs) goggles, the the whole thing. You would be into it, yeah. I would be. Yeah. Baking is science for hungry people is a saying that I learned from uh, the webcomic Questionable Content. Thank you, webcomics. Very true. I learn things from you every day. Okay, so so you're so you're gonna measure your ingredients by weight, but what about those ingredients? What about them? Well, in such such simple cookies, the the types of ingredients that you use are going to vastly um, affect your outcome. Outcomes. Yes. Very important. Using a regular old all-purpose flour will give you a regular cookie. Um, and uh, uh, bre- <laughs> more. I or less. felt a little judgmental. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a. Regular cookie. <laughs> <laughs> if you use uh, bread flour, that's going to that's gonna puff up more and spread less in the oven, giving you a taller and a chewier cookie. Cake flour will uh, flatten and go a little bit crisper. And if you do a mix of both, like Annie and or Jack Torres um, mm-hmm. do, uh, that's, that's going to, that's gonna, I mean, I think it's a fancy way of making sort of regular flour, like a perhaps unnecessary extra step, but um, but but it will give you a little bit more of that chew and uh, and, and and mitigate some of a little bit more of the crisp, a little bit more of the chew, and mitigate some possible crumbliness from using all bread flour or like overspreading from all cake flour. Mm-hmm. And then uh, if you're like me, I don't ever have cake flour, so I have to make my own cake flour. So it adds an extra extra step. Annie, but. <laughs> People like the cookies. People do like the cookies. Mm-hmm. And if you change it now. Who knows what will happen? Oh, I know. <laughs> Madness. <laughs> uh, many recipes call for a blend of white and brown sugars. The molasses and brown sugar is um, is a simple sugar that helps with that chewiness. So if you like chewy, you can try using a higher ratio of brown to white sugar. Um, though you'll get some of that some of that molassesy flavor, too, which is a little bit uh, heavier and, and headier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a crisper cookie, you can try a higher ratio of white to brown sugar. And what's happening here is that um, after the cookie is baked, as it cools, the complex white sugar, which melted in the oven, will recrystallize, helping create a snap. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you've, you've, got your, you've got your butter. Is it cold or is it melted? I don't know. <laughs> what is it, Lauren? <laughs> it can be either. Um when you're using cold butter, you're going to cream it together with the sugar, which is a fancy way of saying like kind of like whipping. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to give you a taller, crisper cookie because the creaming process will whip some air into the mixture, giving the cookie lift in the oven. Um, if you melt butter, that's going to give you a, a denser, chewier cookie because um, melting the butter first unlocks the water molecules within the butter, which can then be grabbed up by proteins in the flour, which can then chain up into those stretchy gluten strands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Though if you're going to melt your butter anyway, I do say to go ahead and brown it. That is, uh, simmer it in a pan, preferably a light-colored pan so that you can see what you're doing better, until the, um, the water evaporates out and then the milk solids separate out from the fats and those solids turn like a light, toasty brown shade. Um, similar to toasting nuts before you add them to recipes or, you know, the, the difference between, like, bread and toast, uh, this brings out some richer flavors. Um, if you do this, though, you might want to um, to add a tablespoon or so of water to the cookie dough because uh, because you're simmering out all of the butter's water content, and your dough won't have any moisture in it. It'll just have fats. And, and your sugar wants some water so that it can caramelize in the oven, and the flour wants it so it can glutenize and get chewy. It's all working together. It is. Mm-hmm. Or just try it without and see how you like it. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, also about butter, unless you are avoiding butter for a specific reason, do not sub it out for a more neutrally flavored fat like vegetable oil because in such a simple cookie, you will miss the flavor of butter. Yeah. It's a nice one. It is. If you like cakey cookies, you can use a combination of both baking soda and baking powder to provide extra lift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most recipes either call for one or the other. You can also play with using whole eggs or more whites or more yolks if you want different textures. Most recipes will call for just a plain old simple whole egg, mm-hmm. but uh, using more whites will give you extra lift in the cookie, a little bit fluffier texture. Uh, using more yolks will give you almost like a brownie-like texture, like sort of yeah. sort of fudgy brownie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I think a sprinkle of salt on top provides a really nice like third flavor contrast with the sweet and the bitter. It's nice. It is. And and also like a like a flaky or crunchy salt, like sea salt. Yeah. Uh, that's that's really nice for that. Yeah. Yeah, just to sprinkle it on there before it goes in the oven. Oh, it's oh, so nice. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> so much science. I love it. I love it. Oh, mm-hmm. Now it is time for me to make cookies. But before that, <laughs> it is time for listener, listener. It's so good. (laughs) Rebecca wrote, My son and I are both avid podcast listeners. Whenever we are in the car together, immediately after buckling, he'll turn to me and ask, Do you want to listen to a podcast? His top two picks from my subscriptions are Ridiculous History and Saver. Recently, he's added a new question. As he is responsible for helping make dinner once a week, whenever he does not know the meaning of a food term, he will pause, look at me, and say, Mom... What is it? <laughs> I love that your podcast has given us silly and memorable bonding moments. Oh, thank you. Adorable. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And and good good show. Good show. Getting a kid in the kitchen. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh huh. Jennifer wrote. Having grown up in San Diego and lived there for three years as an adult, I could not help but write in when you mentioned Rubio's and the famous fish tacos of San Diego. It's true that fish tacos are a thing in San Diego. People are always debating which place has the best ones. However, if you say that your favorite fish taco is from Rubio's, native San Diegans will definitely give you the fish eye. Uh... You're welcome, Annie. (laughs) The story of Rubio's is well known because it's usually plastered on the walls or on the takeaway menus at your local Rubio's. The San Diego fish taco is typically battered and fried fish with shredded cabbage instead of the bland old iceberg lettuce and topped with a lovely creamy sauce and pico de gallo. Traditionally, it's served on a corn tortilla. Different people have their opinions about whether corn or flour tortillas are better, but I insist that fish tacos must be on corn tortillas to be considered authentic. My personal favorite place for fish tacos is Oscar's Mexican Seafood. Their taco especial mixes not one, not two, but three different kinds of seafood. 
Smoked fish, shrimp, and scallops, all topped with shredded cabbage, melted cheese, avocado, onion, cilantro, and salsa. I know it's not at all like the fish taco that I just described, but the flavor combination is fantastic. Ugh. And that sounds so good. That does sound... Holy heck. I've never had a scallop in a taco, and I am, like, questioning my life and my choices right now. What have we been doing? Not eating this taco. It's time. It is time to San Diego. (laughs) We'll be back soon. (laughs) (laughs) What an expense that would be. Yeah. Our boss would be like, what what is this? You understand. We had to go get these fish tacos. (laughs) And we had to be back in time for work the next day. (laughs) Duh. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah um that's that those are those are both very lovely emails thank you both for writing in oh and before we close out for the day i have an announcement for uh anyone else who like annie and i are here in atlanta um on june 9th an organization called collect atlanta is having a having an art fair to support their cause which is to uh successfully shrink the uh the perimeter of food deserts that exists here here in our fair city. There, there are a lot of neighborhoods that do not have access to fresh, healthy foods, despite the fact that we're a big old city, and we can do that. Yes, and we touched on that uh, briefly in our New Orleans episode around that very topic. Yes, Food yes. security and insecurity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you're, you're in Atlanta. Google uh, uh, Collect Atlanta. Um, yeah, June 9th is, mm-hmm. is, that, is that thing. Yes. And if you would like to email us. You can. Yes. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SaverPod. We do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you, as always, to our super producers, Andrew Howard and Dylan Fagan. Thank you to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first Listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.